Uh, it's my pleasure to be bringing the Bible reading with you today. Um, if you haven't got a Bible, uh, please put your hand up, just like myself. If uh, you like a Bible, the host team are coming around to hand out free Bibles for you to read with along with me. Cool. And before we get into the Bible reading, um, I'd like to pray before we start. And praying is just a way that we can be talking to God. And if you'd like to pray alongside me, please bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son Jesus and how he has reconciled us broken sinners to you. Help us now as we open your word to guard us from unbelief and distraction. Through Matt's words, Lord, we pray for our hearts that we may grow a bigger view of who you are as we loosen our grip to the things of this world. As Matt speaks today, help him steward your word faithfully and declare your unstoppable works from ages past. For Jesus' sake, may we come to you in weakness. Amen. Cool. So today's Bible reading will be coming from Acts chapter 17, um, verse 16 to 34. So that's Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And that will be in the New International Version. Starting from verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image 
made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. All right, we're good here, Steve? Great. All right, well, uh, everyone, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at CPE. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, great to be here, to be amongst you, to be uh, opening God's Word together. Uh, look, we've got one of, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts, uh, but actually not just in the book of Acts, in the whole Bible, because we're seeing uh, Paul the Apostle as he encounters the culture in, in Athens and, and, and tries to understand what it what it means to bring the gospel to bear in that place. Now, I don't know what kind of culture you wanted to go to, to study, to observe, to understand. Uh, maybe it was a subculture, uh, I don't know, gaming culture, some kind of little subgroup. Maybe it's a part of the world that you find an interesting and fascinating place. Now, as the borders are opening up and, uh, you know, I hear a lot of people starting to get overseas, start visiting places. Uh, for some reason, it always seems to be Japan around here. I don't know what it is about you guys, CP in Japan, uh, but you're loving that place over there. Uh, it's always interesting, isn't it? Visiting a new place, looking around, observing, taking it all in, trying to understand the, the differences in culture and people and values and religion and, and all the rest. And, uh, you know, I, I, my mind kind of jumped back to a time when uh, Bonnie and I, just pre-kids, we, uh, we went to Istanbul, Turkey. Istanbul, Turkey. Not such an easy place to visit these days. Uh, fascinating place. place yeah, actually, the English is pretty good there. Uh, very different. Very different. Clothing architecture, religion, uh, mosques, you know, great big buildings, fancy, look something totally different to anything that you would find uh, here in Brisbane. Uh, turns actually, you know, a lot of these mosques you can go and visit there as a tourist, uh, very interesting, but you also actually find these little murals, murals of Christ, because actually in the history of Turkey, you'll find that actually there was a big Christian influence there as well as the Muslim, and you sort of see this weird molding of, of these um, uh, different influences there. And I remember thinking, wow, this is a fascinating culture, fascinating to kind of see what they take themselves, declare themselves as a secular Muslim country. Interesting, this is sort of like secular Christian countries that you might see today, and yet so different in everything that they, uh, in that, what they believe and how they live. Now, we've been uh, following the travels of Paul the Apostle around the Middle East, actually kind of in this area, and uh, where we're starting from today is that Paul the Apostle has arrived in Greece. Greece actually just borders Turkey. Uh, we're about probably a thousand kilometers away from Istanbul. Uh, but there we see the gospel has started to move from where it was there in Jerusalem and, and Judea and started moving across, moving across um, uh, the Middle East and moving really heading towards Europe, heading towards Europe. 
Now, we're going to see how Paul brings the gospel to bear on the Athenian culture, the Athenian culture. It's going to be really interesting because I think uh, there's going to be so much here, so much richness there. It's going to help us in what it means to bring the gospel to bear on the culture of Brisbane 2023. And so that's what I'm hoping that we're going to get to. Now, to give you a little bit of context, what has happened as a Paul was rushed out of Thessalonica. Uh, there was a big riot that was happening there. There were people, they were out for blood. They were after him. And so the believers sent Paul off to get away from that as much as possible. Now, they went through Berea where they left uh, Silas and Timothy to kind of stay there and to help the church there. But Paul himself left and headed to Athens. And so that's where we pick things up. Uh, Paul's in Athens. He's waiting for his uh, compatriots to come and join him. Now, what do you know about Athens? Athens is still one of the great touristy kind of cities to go and visit. Uh, it's a great city. It was, it was at the heart of the Greek Empire, the heart of Greek culture. Uh, about three centuries uh, before this point, uh, three to five centuries, the, the Greek Empire was the, the biggest empire there in the ancient world before the Romans came along. Right? Greek, you might think of Greek culture, uh, uh, the way it spread across so many parts of the world, how uh, these guys you've probably heard of, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, uh, all of these guys named Athens as their home. Now, when you think of Greek culture, you might also think of democracy, the place where democracy was invented, the rule of the people, getting a picture of this fascinating place in which it's ruled really by philosophers, politicians, uh, people who are, have the interest in ideas. Now, you might know also the Greek uh, Athens as a place at the heart of Greek religion, Greek gods. And, and a lot of people, when they think of Athens, they, they think of the Parthenon, the great uh, temple of Athena that sits up there on the Acropolis and at the highest point of the city. That's the thing that is lit up that everyone looks to. Athena is a great statue of Athena. Uh, something's happened to it over in the history of time. It's no longer there. But there was, back in this time, there was the, the great statue of Athena, one of the kind of great statues of the ancient world. Now, it's been said that actually in Athens, it's easier to find a god than it is to find a human being because there are something like 30,000 statues and idols to different gods there in Athens. So you can imagine Paul from this Jewish missionary from Jerusalem as he's around in this uh, Athenian city full of idols and statues and, and looking up to this temple of Athena, having his eyes opened. Imagine him as the tourist thinking, wow, what an interesting place to be. What an interesting place. But that's not all that he felt. That's not all that he felt. If you've got your Bibles, come back with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. See, what's Paul's response to being there in Athens? You know, I'm going to go take a few selfies around Athens and take it all in. Now, he started thinking a little bit more behind that, isn't he? I'm sure he is thinking, wow, this is interesting, but Paul, being the God-fearing Jew that he is, knowing the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, knows that you don't make idols and statues, any kind of image, carved image of the God of the universe. 
And so when he's standing there and he's thinking and he's looking at it, kind of feeling, feeling distress, he's feeling concern, he's feeling compassion for these people who are lost. He looks upon the culture of Athens and the world that he's in with compassion, concern for their salvation. But there they are looking for God and finding in, a, in, in thousands upon thousands of different gods. And he's feeling that in his heart. They don't know the true God. See, how many of us, as we're out there sightseeing and visiting places, are we also thinking about the salvation of those who live there? And as we look, Paul looks across Athens, he looks upon a city of thousands and thousands of gods, and yet missing the one true God who is there. You know, it's a little bit like the university campus of today. You know, I got CP to send me a picture from uh, O-Week up at Griffith University, and you can walk around there at university, and there's a million stalls there, and everybody's saying, hey, come and join our club. Every different kind of belief and idea exists there in the university campus and, uh, and there's this melting pot of different things and, and, and as all these young people are out of home, you know, who are, who are out, of, out of school and just going to study, they're also getting bombarded and, and pulled by every different kind of message that's out there. So Paul, as he's supposed to be waiting for Silas and Timothy... He can't help but actually go and preach to anyone who will listen. Preach in the synagogue. Preach in the marketplace. So verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both, with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, this is very... If you've been following on with us in Acts, this is a very, very different place, isn't it? Like Paul's been hounded out of these towns and cities and there's been uh, riots, people who've been out for blood, people who've opposed him. And here, are, here is this place of ideas and philosophy and people are just interested. They want to know, what is this new thing? We haven't heard this message about this God before, about the resurrection. Come and talk to us about it. And what happens, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers come by. Now, uh, you know, Epicureans, uh, they were kind of of this philosophical belief that, hey, this life is all there is. You know, you live, you die, there's nothing else to it. So what do you do? Well, go and eat, drink, be merry. You know, uh, they believe that actually, hey, it's all, life's about minimizing pain, maximizing pleasure. You've got to make the most of what you got because this is all there is. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Yes, in fact, Epicureanism very much alive and well. In fact, one of the top apps on the App Store you'll find is an app called Epicurious, an app about uh, recipes and meals that you can cook. Uh, Epicureanism. Not just an ancient Greek thing, actually very much revived and, and thriving in, in the modern West. Stoicism. Now, Stoicism was kind of like the opposing philosophical position because uh, they were very much all about living the virtuous life. 
you know, self-control, uh, the ethical life. That's the kind of world we, you need to live in. Because this world is full of suffering and justice. And instead of running away from it or filling your life up with pain, it's about facing it with a stiff upper lip, uh, being in control of your passions, uh, being in control, uh, not seeking pleasure, status or wealth, but stepping back from that and just kind of being courageous, being responsible. Does that sound familiar to you? Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Both Epicureanism and Stoicism are sort of seeing their own revivals today. If you've listened to anything by uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, Jocko Willink, Ryan Holiday, uh, there's a whole stream of self-help development books and, and authors out there who are more or less trotting out Stoicism today. In fact, it might even sound a little bit similar to Confucianism. If you're a little bit uh, more down the Chinese end of, of things, um, uh, Confucianism has a lot of overlap with Stoicism. And you might uh, see some of the resemblance there. So he faces these, these two groups of philosophers who themselves don't even agree with each other. Uh, but what happens next is actually quite interesting, extraordinary. They take him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Uh, also known as Mars Hill, is another name for it. Uh, verse 19, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what is this new teaching that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You see, just down the hill from the great temple of Athena is this little rocky outcrop, right? It's, a little, it's called the Areopagus, right? The Areopagus court was this place where uh, politicians and philosophers and religious leaders, they would all come together and, and discuss things, discuss ideas and philosophy. They'll discuss laws and religions. And, and that's really where um, a lot of the sort of ideas would be generated from the, from the, the core of the Areopagus and would spread across the city. But I love the little characterization that uh, Luke gives of the Athenians. You know, they love nothing else than to stand around and, and share ideas, right? Again, kind of that university campus kind of thing, or the, maybe it's like the Twitter sphere of today where people really uh, juke things out there about, um, about how our world and society should be organized. So I want you to just imagine the moment, Paul, as he stands there in the Areopagus, uh, speaking to all these learned philosophers and experts on, on probably not a lot of uh, preparation either. He's, he's had a few days in Athens, probably exploring the city, learning what he can about their philosophy, about their religion. But there he is, presented and stood up to say, hey, come and tell us about this new, this new God and this new religion, this, this resurrection you've been talking about. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship and even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now, we're going to sort of dissect Paul's little speech here because it is fascinating. It's really interesting. And you, you see the way where he starts, right? He's starting, well, he's actually starting at a very different point to where he normally starts. He normally starts with, you know, when he's in the synagogues, he says, hey, you know the prophets, you know King David and what they said about what was going to happen with the Messiah. He doesn't start there, though, does he? He starts actually uh, with them and says, well, hey, people of Athens, I see you are really religious. 
So religious. Look at all the, the items of worship that you have around. But I found this really interesting one. This, this statue to an unknown God. You see, it seems that the Athenians probably had this uh, statue that was, you know, amongst the 30,000 uh, other statues, there was the one that's to cover all the other bases, just in case there was that God who's not acknowledged and not worshipped. So we had to have that statue that's it's probably just a blank uh, altar there with, with nothing, with no statue there, kind of saying, well, to the God that we don't know, here is the chance to worship. And so what you see Paul doing there, I think that first step, he starts with really positive observations about their culture, about their longings, about what they like, what they desire, their desire to worship, their desire to try and find God. This is the kind of culture that is there in Athens. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So where does he go then? Well, I think in lots of ways, he's trying, to, uh, he's trying to connect now. He's trying to make the connection with the culture around them. Oh, I've got a missing slide there. Uh, he's trying to make the connection there because he's saying, well, hey, there's this narrative that you have about trying to find the God and to worship him. Well, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about scripture's narrative about uh, about the world he starts with the fact that there is the god the one true god who created the heavens and the earth it wasn't just sort of product of the battles between the varying gods out there in the cosmos nor does this god need a temple for people to serve them and to bring them food and sacrifices and the like he doesn't need humans attaining to them. He's the one who provides for everyone. He made everything. He sustains it all. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So what's he, what's he doing now? Having kind of made the connection to kind of go, well, hey, all this thing that you hope for and desire, that, that the scripture actually speaks about this. We starts actually challenging them with a new narrative. You see, everything that he says in this little paragraph here is actually very non-Greek answers to the search for God. See, there's thousands of Greek gods, not one God who created everything, Greek philosophy worked very much from man up to God. That's why uh, the Greek gods always, uh, they're very human-like, right? They have very sort of accentuated human desires rather than being something totally uh, different, like the Jewish God, like our God. And at this point, then Paul actually quotes one of their own prophets, Epimenides. So he's challenging them with a new narrative, but what is he doing next? Oh, I've got another missing slide there. Okay, uh, all right, so what he's doing next now is he's now uh, both challenging their narrative, but then he's also supporting his narrative with their own prophets. He's appealing to their authorities, people that they would look up to, people that they would know. And by uh, quoting them, he's actually kind of reinforcing his own message. 
Yeah, maybe in the same way that uh, we might look to scientists or doctors and uh, maybe we look to self-help gurus. He does this to back his claim that God has given us life and we therefore owe everything to him. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this, to everyone, by raising him from the dead. So Paul closes off his speech here with a challenge. The challenge of the gospel. This is where it all leads. What he's pointing at is that, hey, the gospel addresses that search for God. But the way in which you Greeks have been doing it is all wrong. God has kind of ignored that. He's given you chances now to repent, to turn to him. He's commanded everyone and he has appointed someone to judge. Jesus, the one who died and was resurrected, resurrected to be the judge of the heavens and the earth. And so what you do right now, Greeks, might be the difference between punishment and judgment under the one that God has lifted up as the judge. Now, uh, a friend uh, put this to me that uh, sometimes preaching the gospel is a bit like putting the little pebble in someone's shoe, right? It may not convince them then and there at that point, but you know when you're walking around, you've got a little rock in your shoe, and it's just really ignoring and, and annoying in your, in your foot, on your foot. Uh, it's like that little thing. So he's trying to drop in this little hint in that to say, well, maybe, maybe all you Greeks are doing it wrong. Maybe you keep searching and looking for more and more gods to worship and, and, and you even have this thing to an unknown God. Maybe there's one God over all of that. Maybe all of those things, all that heart's yearning and desire is meant that we would seek out and find the God who made the universe and everything in it. You see, that end point is the same. Jesus, his death, his resurrection... But what Paul shows is that there are many, many different ways to get there. And how you get there might depend on kind of the culture that you see and, 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 and helping to, to convince people to make this comprehensible to them. He actually uses uh, his observations about their culture, uses their authorities in their culture to point them towards the gospel narrative. You see, I think there's a thing here about flexibility in the way that we do preach the gospel. Now, generally, you know, even in our Western world today, you know, if you went back 30 or 40 years ago, generally people would have understood the Bible. They would have understood the Ten Commandments, for example. And I remember seeing a lot of examples of, of evangelism from the past was about going, hey, look, here's the Ten Commandments. You generally believe that the Ten Commandments are good. Now tell me, do you meet up to these, these Ten Commandments? Does your life uh, reflect these Ten Commandments? And the answer is, of course, well, of course not. You see, there's an assumption about some sort of goodness or authority there behind Scripture. And, and I would say today that that is all gone. You used to be able to start from an agreement there, but today, no. No, I don't think you can start with that uh, agreement in our Western world. Now, depending on who you're with, maybe you're meeting an international student from Southeast Asia, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a secular Westerner, that starting point is going to be completely different depending on where you're at. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment, but let's see how things are, how people respond. Verse 32. 
When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear from you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You see, as Paul uh, finishes this moment there in the Areopagus, uh, there's three responses there that you see, don't you? Rejection, reflection, and reception. Rejection, reflection, reception. Some of them just sneered, particularly at the idea of resurrection. Because in Greek culture, the idea of actually being resurrected in bodily, fleshy form, that was so anti-Greek. Greeks, they want to be resurrected as a, as a spirit, because the spirit world is good and the fleshy world is bad. But others were really provoked to the fore, and they said, this is really interesting. We'd love to hear some more from you on that. And others still received it, including a member of the Areopagus. So we see, hey, this really openly religious audience, well, in some ways they're open, in some ways they're still closed, aren't they? And some respond, some reject, some want to hear some more. Now, some people have said, well, this is a complete failure. Uh, Paul's, uh, uh, Paul's thing, uh, speech in the Areopagus, was a, it was a failure. But I actually think that it was a success. I think it, largely, overall, he got the message. I reckon he planted a few stones. I reckon he pointed a few people to Jesus. In fact, today, if you uh, visit the Areopagus, there we go. Oh, we've lost slides. Oh, we are gone completely. Okay. All right. So today, if you visit the Areopagus, you won't find worshippers of Zeus. You won't find worshippers of Athena. In fact, what you will find is a little plaque there on the rocks, rocks there at the Areopagus, a plaque there with Paul's speech to the Areopagus. And you'll find there tourists from all over the world, especially Christian tourists, who come to want to come and, and see the Areopagus for themselves. And you'll see, actually, that gospel word that Paul preached there continues to be preached to every tourist who comes by there and is visited by Christians who, who now believe that thing from all over the world. So, church, what are we to make of this famous speech of Paul's uh, in the center of the philosophical and cultural life of the ancient world. Well, I think let's be reminded of the bigger picture here. Now, we see the gospel has gone forth, hasn't it, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and now it's going out to the ends of the world. So it's crossing these cultural barriers, crossing these religious barriers. And what we're seeing is the way in which the, the preaching of the gospel is evolving itself. Not that the gospel has changed. We still get to the same point, Jesus, his death, his resurrection. But the way in which you get there has changed. And I think that's why Luke has included all this detail for us. So what does that evolution look like? What aspects of the proclamation might you actually tailor towards the audience in which you have? I mean, I think you quite see clearly that uh, some things are the same, but some things have changed that actually uh, uh, you can imagine as Paul's just walking around in Athens observing all of this, he's starting to piece together, put pieces together, say, ah, there are ways in for the gospel as I look at and observe the things that these Athenians are really uh, on about. So here's a quick exercise. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to chat to someone next to you. Imagine Paul is walking through Garden City, Westfield, okay? 
or is it Mount Cravat Westfield or something we're supposed to call it now, whatever. Anyway, he's walking through Westfield, uh, through down the mall, the shops, uh, through the eating area, past the multiplex cinemas. Uh, what does Paul observe? How might he kind of uh, uh, pick up on things that are going on there? How, have, a, have a chat to someone, 30 seconds, find someone, chat to them. 30 seconds, what might Paul observe as he's walking through the Westfield? Pull you up there. That'll be a, a great discussion to continue. But what does Paul say there? What does he say when he says, "People of Brisbane, I see that you are very what? You're very concerned about your comfort, about your pleasure, about your food." Does he walk past the multiplex and he sees, says, "You very you, you love." You love your multiverse movies right now, because that's really, really in right now. What does he say? Does he say, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, as you probably know by now, I'm big on my movies and, and film and literature and those kinds of things. Would he say, hey, look, I see that you observe how fractured the world is out there. You see that actually, hey, there's probably a better version of me out there somewhere in the multiverse or somewhere out there, but what you see is this kind of broken version of me. Where you see your relationships are broken. And you know that if things continue, that there is a disaster that's going to happen and that you would love for some uh, very powerful hero to come along and save the day. But we say, well, you're very ignorant about the true story, about the story that's behind those stories about the God who made the universe and everything and made it, made it one and whole and harmonious. And that the fractures that you see are a result of our broken relationship with the God who made the universe. And might he quote someone, quote the movies, might he quote everything, everywhere at once, where one of the characters says, I'm tired, I don't want to hurt anyone anymore, and for some reason when I'm with you, it just hurts the both of us. Would he quote one of the X-Men? He says, well, just because someone stumbles and loses their way doesn't mean that they are lost forever. This, I, Paul, declare to you, Jesus is the hero you need. He is the one who can bring back and restore the broken fractures in our world and the broken fractures in you and your relationships. And he has given proof of this by dying on the cross 
to heal our, our problem with sin, to deal with our problem of judgment, to resurrect us to a new life. Is that what he would say? You see, uh, what we're talking about is what you might hear called contextualization. Contextualization. Now, Tim Keller is one of the best proponents of this, uh, particularly to the Western secular world. Uh, and he says this contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking, in language and forms that they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force that they can feel. Now, I'll just say that again for you. I can, I can post this up later for you. A contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms that they can comprehend and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel. So you see that in Paul's own speech, he references the city of idols and their hopes and their yearnings to worship the God. He quotes their poets and philosophers before answering their search about the unknown God with answers from the Bible. He's not just pandering to the culture around him. He's not just uh, affirming everything that's there in culture. He challenges the cult culture with the gospel. You see, to preach a contextualized gospel is, is to resonate with the culture, but then to push back and defy it and to show that actually the Bible has better answers for the very thing that you want, that you yearn for, for the questions that you're asking. But I actually want to come back to that first point because I think in some ways it starts from there. We could talk about contextualization for hours and hours and, you know, that's a thing that's of interest, of real interest for me personally. Uh, but I want to come back to that first point. Because my question is, do you look upon the world with compassion and concern for its salvation? Church, I think that's where it starts. It starts in our heart. It starts with our compassion. It starts with our concern. You see, my real worry about the world as we see it, and particularly how polarized it is, and, is that we look upon the world with suspicion, with hatred, with judgment, instead of seeing the culture around us with compassion, People who are lost, people who are searching and finding answers in all the wrong places. Now, a friend of mine posted a, a photo from a church in Surrey Hills in the last week, uh, which is right in the midst of the Mardi Gras there in Sydney. Now, I don't know what that kind of image might provoke in you, what kind of feelings that might bring up for you. Uh, but it is one of those cultural celebration moments of, of pride and love and all those things. And I think Christians might be tempted to look on this with fear, loathing, judgment. But the pastor there put it really well, Vine Church, down sitting. He said, we're not protesting the Mardi Gras soapbox style, nor are we promoting its values. We're seeking to provide a place for conversation that bridges a divide. We hope that they would come to understand something of the life, love, and freedom that Jesus offers as they connect with Christians at an unlikely event. Now, you see what he's saying? He says, I see your hope, your desire to be loved, to be accepted, to be free. And I'm 
positively disposed towards that desire, but you're finding it in the wrong place. What we're hoping is that you will connect with some Christians and discover that Jesus offers a much better answer, a much better place for that hope, for that love, and for that freedom. Now, uh, my friend down there said, you know, there were people who... uh, who were there and they were, you know, the typical line, pretty much condemning. I mean, how, you know, Jesus, he condemns homosexuality. How could he accept me? There were others who said they loved it. They never thought that they could just walk into church and talk and discuss with Christians like normal people. And they enjoyed that. And still there were others who apparently had the idea of church and Christianity turned on its head in one night and were keen to find out more. You see, church, I think it's that heart I'm going to take from Paul, that concern, that compassion. And we're going to take that and we're going to find ways in which the gospel will speak to that. And we're going to hope that actually as we do that, we might earn a hearing for the gospel and that some may turn and hear that message of repentance and know life and love and freedom in the gospel that can only be found in Jesus. What not I pray for us and in our efforts to do that with our friends and our family? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do see this moment. We hear of these events. And Lord, we're both challenged and provoked in our own ways, in the ways that we look upon the cultures around us, be it Western secularism, the Buddhists, the Muslims, the apathists, those who are just apathetic. Father, we pray that you might give us that heart of care and concern, that you might give us words and wisdom, that we might be quick to listen and observe and to learn more, that we might to see how it intersects with the gospel. And Father, we thank you that in the words of the gospel, in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Lord, we have the answer to all of life's hopes and questions and desires. And Father, we pray that you might continue to stroke in our hearts the desire to take that hope to our world. And Father, for those of us who find this a real struggle and find this confronting and difficult, we pray that you might give us boldness encourage and father most of all we pray that those little stones that we leave in people's shoes might actually be the thing that opens them up to the gospel that they might know salvation in jesus name we pray all of this in his name and for his glory amen All right, well, church, we are going to spend a little bit of time. Uh, We're going to take the Lord's Supper together.